So earlier this year, I was at a district training event and attended a breakout session that was led by the main speaker. She was a former dean of the Duke Divinity School, which is proof that she must have had something good to say because if a Carolina fan went to hear a, a Dukey talk, I mean, <laughs> anyways, uh, as she she was talking about a way of doing Bible study that harnesses ancient practices for modern use. The frame of, this, uh, of the study was four different scopes for reading scripture. The second scope was a periscope. And she said, what do periscopes do? I'll ask our Navy guy, what do periscopes do? <laughs> they look around, right? Um, and so they go around in a circle to show you what's around you. So she said one of the ways that we can read the Bible is in a periscope way. To look at stories that are around a particular passage of, of scripture as a way of getting deeper insight into the one that you're reading. And y'all, my mind was blown. How had I never seen this before? The example she used is one, the one that we are going to look at today. But it's all over scripture. We get so used to reading things one story at a time and talking about it one story at a time or reading it as one chunk and talking about it as one chunk that we often fit, miss how the pieces fit together. It's like we have this jigsaw puzzle and we spend one week talking about this piece and another week talking about this piece and we never look at how the, the connections that the pieces make with each other. So this summer we're going to remedy that. <laughs> we're going to look at two pieces of scripture and see how they relate with one another. Which means you're going to read a lot of scripture this summer, which is a good thing. And it also means you get less of my words and more of God's word, which also good thing. All good things this summer. Our first juxtaposition comes from the beginning part of John's gospel. And like I said, this was the text that the presenter used that set my mind spinning. Today we're going to look at two early encounters with Jesus by two people who couldn't be any more different. Their stories, their motivations, and their responses to Jesus couldn't be more different. And you'll never guess which one the gospels invite us to emulate. So we're going to start in John chapter 3. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could do the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at me saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. So that's our first text, and it's about Nicodemus. We are told right away some information about our man. He's a Pharisee and a member of the Jewish ruling council. He's a false follicle of immense size. A bigwig. Yeah, it's a Jeopardy clue, right? But nevertheless, he wants to speak to Jesus. I had to do a dad joke on Father's Day. And it's, it's, not an, it's not an issue, him going to see Jesus, right? Except he, just, he can't just go and see Jesus. That would risk too much of his social standing. It'd be too scandalous. He'd be in real trouble with his fellow councilmen. His, he'd risk his status and perhaps his job. So what do you do if you want to meet someone but you can't risk being seen? You go in the middle of the night. Jesus and Nicodemus have a conversation about being born again, and Nicodemus is thoroughly confused. Jesus talks about being reborn in the Spirit and about how only the Son of Man has gone to heaven and can talk about it, and that the Son of Man will need to be lifted up so that people can have eternal life. Then John has this brief interlude about light and dark, and we'll revisit that later. And that's the scene. Presumably, Nicodemus returns to his house, wakes up the next day, and lives his life the exact same way he had before his encounter with Jesus. We don't hear about him again until much, much later, when he goes and does another thing in secret. Nicodemus hears Jesus talk about what he must do to inherit eternal life, and he goes and does nothing with it. He keeps his place on the council, and as far as we know, only he and Jesus know about his midnight visit. Until John publishes his gospel and blows the whole thing up. But <laughs> Let's move on to John chapter 4. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, absolutely how you pronounce it, near the plot of ground Jacob had, had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from his journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself? as did also his sons and his livestock. 
Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you are now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain because you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and now has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. So our second story involves a nameless Samaritan woman. Nicodemus was a prominent member of the Jerusalem ruling council. This woman is a Samaritan peasant. Jesus meets her at the town well in the middle of the day. She's alone. But she knew she'd be there alone. She went there so that she would be there alone. You see, one of the first chores that women in the ancient world would do was go to the town well and draw all the water they'd need for the day. You have these massive jars that you'd fill so you didn't spend half your day walking to the well and back to get water. But funny thing, liquids get heavy in mass quantities, as some of us might have learned in college. And it gets, I didn't just say that, no, no. And it gets hot in the Middle East during the day. So if you were going to gather all the water your family would need for the day and carry it back to your house, you'd want to get it done early in the morning before the sun beat down on you. And that's precisely what happened in village after village throughout Israel and Samaria. And yet here is this woman in the middle of the day doing an arduous physical task in the heat of the day. She didn't go in the morning when all the other women would have gone. She didn't go in the morning when all the other women would have been there, waiting their turn for the well, talking, socializing, being in community. So here's what we know. This woman is an outcast. While she's drawing her water, she meets Jesus. They have an equally confusing conversation about the nature of worship and what separates Israelites and Samaritans, living water and the nature of thirst, etc. The heart of this moment, the heart of this conversation, is when she surrenders a bit and asks Jesus for the living water. It's almost a small admission, a small confession. Give me water so I won't get thirsty and I won't have to face this choice between going in the heat of the day or going when I might be exposed to others. 
So Jesus says, go get your husband. She reveals that she has no husband, and Jesus says, you're right. You've had five husbands, and you're currently with a man who's not your husband. And there it is. That's why she's at the well at noon. That's why she is an outcast. Now here's what we don't know. The exact nature of her relationships. There's a lot of speculation about the nature of her relationships. We don't know. The Bible doesn't say. We can speculate as to how she came to have five husbands and be living with someone who isn't her husband. But here's perhaps the most important thing we do know about this. None of this happened by her choice. Women didn't have that sort of agency in the ancient world. She did not choose this life. And yet she would have been an outcast all the same. Her situation would have made her unfit to associate with other people. And frankly, she probably would have just as rather been by herself. As much as social custom would have forced her to the well at noon, shame and fear and embarrassment would have done the job just as well. And here is Jesus locating the source of her shame and her isolation. For this woman, to be known and to be loved had become mutually exclusive. You could have one, but not both. People in her town knew her, and she faced their rejection daily, as fierce and hot as the sun on her back as she carries the water. Frankly, the, the shame and the judgment was probably fiercer. In this moment, Jesus is saying, Child, you are known and you are not rejected. I know who you are, and I'm still here. I'm still having this conversation with you. I'm still offering you living water. Imagine for a second that just for this one hour, Jesus were alive in Prince William County this morning. It's a blasphemous thought, I know, but go with me. Jesus is alive here in the flesh in Prince William County for this one hour only, a limited engagement. Where do you suppose he goes? Where do you think he'd go to hang out? Now, we're conditioned to think he'd go to church, right? That's what good, holy, righteous people do on Sunday mornings. Jesus would choose to spend his time talking to his followers. And you might be right. We have a lot of evidence of Jesus spending a lot of time with his disciples in the gospel. But consider this. Here we have two stories. One about a good church person and one about a social outcast. In the story about the good church person, it's the church person going to Jesus and initiating the conversation. In the story about the social outcast, Jesus goes to her, and it's Jesus who initiates the conversation. And so I wonder if Jesus were here right now, if he wouldn't find other places to go. Places where there are people who are overscheduled and overtired. Places where there are people who have been run ragged. Places where there are people desiring to be known and loved because they are so deeply convinced that the two are mutually exclusive. Really quickly, I want to revisit that interlude about light and dark. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be plainly seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. One of those verses is John 3.19. And I remember being a kid uh, in church when my home church pastor did a sermon about, you ever, you ever wonder why people don't hold John 3.19 signs at football games? Uh, anyways. 
Every time I read that, I see this huge John 3.19 sign. Um, but this is the bridge between these two stories. Nicodemus comes to Jesus in the dark. He has a conversation with Jesus in the dark. And he keeps that conversation in the dark because he's afraid. He's afraid of being exposed. He's afraid of what it might cost him. The woman at the well has a conversation with Jesus in the light. Life and circumstances have made it such that she doesn't have the chance of meeting Jesus in the dark. Her deeds are already known to the other people of her town and to Jesus. She can't hide, although I very much believe she wished she had that privilege. Her deeds are known and she is known. But here's the wonderful, beautiful, amazing, terrifying, surprising, unbelievable scandal. Even as she is known, Jesus meets her. Jesus reaches out to her. Jesus loves her. So what does she do? She goes to the other people in her town. Imagine that. The woman who is willing to do manual labor in the afternoon heat because of shame and fear goes to the very people she sweat and toiled to avoid. Where'd the shame go? Where'd the fear go? Truth be told, some of it might still be there, but it doesn't matter nearly as much as it matters to tell people about this man. This man that, who knew everything about her. Come and see, she says. He might just be the Messiah. These passages are powerful in their own right, but when I heard perhaps they were meant to be read together, a light went off in my brain. Because when you read together, we see the clear choice this offers. And it's a question of would you rather. Would you rather be Nicodemus or the woman at the well? Would you rather be in the dark or in the light? Would you rather be respected by your peers, successful at work, prominent, but get that by having to hustle, hide your true self from everyone lest you found out, never revealing what you truly think and believe, forever worried that if someone does really know you that you'll lose it all? Holy run on sentence. <laughs> or would you rather be known, warts and all, and have faith that God and Jesus Christ and your brothers and sisters in faith will love you because we know you? On the one hand, it seems like an easy choice, right? I would rather be known and loved in Christ. And yet why for so many of us are we Nicodemus? How often do we go to work, or do we work to keep up the hustle, keep up the facade because we can't accept that without our role and prominence and all that comes with it, that we are enough, that we are loved and we are accepted. So we're gonna do something a little different this summer. Our mission statement outlines our three primary ministries, our three elements of discipleship, worship, small groups, and service. Worship and service still happen throughout the summer, but often what happens is our small groups take a break because their schedules are so crazy. It's tough for our groups to have any sort of continuity, especially our weeknight groups. And here on Sunday mornings, it's hard to build a cohesion as everyone is in and out throughout the summer. So most, most of the time what happens is our groups take off. But here we believe that the importance of small groups is that they connect us to God and connect us to other people. And abandoning that connection point during the summer really does our mission and our discipleship a disservice. So we wanted to create some sort of opportunity for you to connect with God and with others over the summer. So I'm going to ask you to trust me for a few weeks while we do, uh, while we do something new. We think, we hope, this will be meaningful to you. We're calling it our summer extensions. 
for about 10 minutes, like in a couple minutes, right here in service, I'm going to ask you to, for 10 minutes, engage these stories and this message in a way that's most comfortable for you. We know all of us are a bit different, and so we have some different activities based on who you are, how God made you, and how you'll best connect to these stories and this message personally. One of our core values here is authenticity, and we, we want to provide different ways so you can be authentically you before God. So if you're an extrovert and learn by talking, if you're like me, uh, we have some small group type questions. We're going to ask you to arrange chairs over here. If you're an introvert and learn by writing and thinking, the opposite of me, um, we have some journals there in the back uh, with some question prompts to get you started. Or frankly, if you want to just stream of conscience, whatever you're feeling, that's great too. Uh, so bring a couple chairs with you because there aren't chairs at that table, um, but there are journals as well. If you are a tactile, crafty person, there's a station for you over here where you're going to, there's a poster activity that you can do in a group and with your hands and combine all of those things together. Uh, and if you engage scripture best through prayer, we have some prayer prompts for you. Uh, we're going to ask you to arrange your chairs over in this area. <laughs> we're going to do it every week so you can like vacation and one to next to the other and the other. So a quick note to the journal people. We'd love for you to write in these journals anonymously and leave the journals here. So that way, over the summer, this can become a communal expression, a silent small group, if you will, um, where each journal has multiple voices talking about multiple topics. However, if that's going to keep you from being authentic and real in this time, take the journal home with you. Because it's more important for you to be real and authentic than it is for us to have some sort of lasting memory of the thing. Um, bring it back next week if you do take it home, but there's also grace here, and if you forget, we'll have more journals. It'll be, all will be well. Um, I know I spoke with a negative connotation about Nicodemus coming at night, but frankly, it's a whole lot better than not coming at all. So, and this goes for everyone, not just our journalers, but do whatever you need to do to be authentically you in this space, connecting with God through the juxtaposition of these stories. So you all got the drill. Do I need to re-show and say where everything is? S small groups here, extroverts, small groupy people, uh, crafty, tactile group project people, prayer people right here, and journalers at that round table. Uh, I'll call us back in about 10 minutes. Um, and ready, break.